Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence toward children, mutilation, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Throughout history, there have always been those who remain shrouded in mystery. And in Belle Gunness's case, the lore surrounding her and her crimes eventually grew to mythic proportions. To some, she was a black widow, a temptress and man-eater. Others focused on the pure strength she displayed at various times. In both versions of the story, she was a woman who depended entirely on herself and simply used the men in her life to her advantage. Because Belle knew what she wanted, and she was willing to do anything to get it. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society often associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from ParCast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Belle Gunness, a woman who murdered her first husband for the life insurance payout and got addicted to the result. So she started luring suitors to her Indiana farm. But of the many men who paid her a visit, few lived to tell the tale. Today, we'll learn how Belle's murderous plot finally imploded. Then we'll explore the controversy surrounding her case and try to piece together the truth about how the story ends. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. By the beginning of 1908, 48-year-old Belle Gunness had lured at least 10 men to her farm in Laporte, Indiana, under false pretenses. After placing various ads in Norwegian newspapers, suitors came calling, 
all of them believed Belle was after a husband, but really, she was just after their money. And once she got it, or it became clear she wasn't going to get it, she killed them, each and every one of them. Left to her own devices, Belle likely could have continued down this path for years to come. She mostly flew under the radar, a single mother trying to raise a family. No one suspected that she was secretly a serial killer. But there was one person who paid her a great deal of attention, her farmhand, 39-year-old Ray Lamphere. Ray helped run the farm, and it was a role he wanted to make permanent. He was smitten with Belle and believed he had a real chance with her. In fact, he'd marry her on the spot if she'd have him. But Belle had no interest in Ray beyond physical companionship. She visited his room to sleep with him from time to time, which likely contributed to his growing infatuation. But Ray wasn't wealthy, so Belle had little genuine interest in him, which ironically was what kept Ray alive in her presence for so long. But Ray was frustrated by her lack of interest, and things only got worse with the arrival of Belle's latest suitor, a 49-year-old Swede named Andrew Helgeline. He was a big fish, and Belle was sure that if she landed him, she'd be set. She'd been writing him letters for the past two years, and finally, in January of 1908, she convinced him to leave behind his home in South Dakota and visit her farm. Now with Andrew on his way, Belle could focus on the next step of her process, to secure his money and kill him off. Before we continue with Belle's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Now, it might seem strange that Belle cultivated a relationship like this for two years, even though she always intended to kill him, but this might actually come down to biology. According to a Penn State News article by Katie Bonn, in which she discusses the work of research psychologist Marissa Harrison, male and female serial killers often choose their victims based on evolutionary traits. The findings can be summarized by the following quote, Male serial killers tend to hunt their victims. Female serial killers tend to gather their victims, targeting people around them who they may already know, often for financial gain. In Belle's case, she was gathering potential suitors, collecting them like berries in a field, and then turning on them for her own gain. And Andrew Helgeline was exactly the kind of berry Belle was after. She'd relieve this wealthy widower of his wealth, then dispose of him. After all, she'd done it with all the men who came before him. She saw no reason that this time would be any different. But when Andrew showed up on the Gunness farm in January 1908, Belle was immediately taken with him, particularly his good looks. Andrew was a tall, handsome Norwegian rancher from South Dakota, exactly Belle's type of man. He strode onto her property, wearing a big Western hat and a long gray fur coat that nearly skimmed the ground as he walked. When he greeted Belle for the very first time, it was with a kind and genuine smile. She had to remind herself not to get distracted. After all, he wouldn't last long. 
But that didn't mean she couldn't enjoy herself while he was there. So she turned to Ray and asked him to sleep in the barn. That way, Andrew could have the spare room. Over the next few days, Belle cozied up to Andrew and spent every moment sweet-talking him. She needed him to sign over his money to her before she killed him. But she had done this so many times, she wasn't worried. Everything was going to plan. Well, everything except for Ray, who was spiraling with jealousy. He was threatened by Andrew, who seemed to be literally replacing him. He stewed in his anger. How dare Belle kick him out of the house to make room for some other man? Furious, Ray started going around town, talking to anyone who would listen about everything that was wrong with Andrew. He even tried to get the guy arrested. He told the police that he was wanted for murder in South Dakota. That was a bold-faced lie, which the sheriff quickly realized. But Ray didn't let up. He could be heard all around town muttering about Andrew and what he wanted to do to him. Word of Ray's antics eventually got back to Belle, and even she had to admit that he was becoming a problem. Still, she tried to push her farmhand aside so she could deal with the real matter at hand, Andrew. Once she got his money and discarded him, she could go back to life as normal. Maybe then Ray would stop acting so jealous and they could carry on as they always had. She just had to focus for a little longer. At last, after spending two whole weeks with him, Belle convinced Andrew to have his money transferred from his South Dakota bank to the one in Laporte. They just had to go in person to finalize everything. Together, Belle and Andrew went downtown to collect the check. In those days, a transfer meant sending a check carrying all your money, which could then either be deposited into a new account or cashed out. Andrew assumed Belle would put the money into her bank account for safekeeping, but she waved off that suggestion. Instead, she wanted to cash the check and keep all the money on the farm. She didn't need to stow it away in a bank. Andrew thought that was strange, but like every suitor who had come before him, he simply shrugged it off, figuring that Belle had her reasons. What did it matter, really? They were going to be married soon enough anyway. But when they got back to Belle's farm, things took a turn for poor Andrew. Here, it's important to remember that like so many of Belle's previous crimes, we don't know the exact details about what happened next, but based on the evidence and the more credible stories, we've pieced things together as best we can. In this instance, what we do know is that Belle poisoned Andrew, just like she usually did to her victims. But before the drug could take effect, Andrew must have sensed something was wrong and an altercation broke out between the two of them. Belle came at him with a knife or some other sharp weapon and slashed at him. He raised his arm to block her and the blade sliced through his wrist, cutting him twice all the way down to the bone. After that, Belle got the upper hand. She lunged at him again, this time chopping off the tops of his fingers on his right hand. It was a messy, bloody affair. But Belle wasn't phased. She had dealt with blood and gore many times before. The struggle continued until finally Belle got in a fatal blow. 
And then, just as quickly as it started, the whole thing was over. Andrew Helgeline was dead on the floor. Still catching her breath, Belle glanced outside the window, taking in her sprawling farm. She'd have to find a good place to bury him out there before anyone came looking. Belle thought that everything would go back to normal after she got rid of Andrew, particularly with Ray, but there was irreparable damage done there. Even once it was just the two of them again, her farmhand was in a miserable state. He performed all his work duties, but he wasn't happy about it as he did them. When he finished each day, he went to live elsewhere, only showing up to the farm for work hours, and he straight up refused to sleep with Belle again. Belle couldn't believe his nerve. She'd given him a job when no one else would. She had housed him, taken him into her bed. The only thing she hadn't done was kill him, and he should be thanking her for that. But instead, he just kept sulking. It grated on Belle until finally she grew so frustrated by his attitude that she decided enough was enough. She didn't need any man to help her run her farm, and she certainly didn't need him. So on February 3, 1908, Belle fired Ray and told him never to come back to her property. It was a decision that would come back to haunt her. Up next, Belle commits one final shocking crime. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past. From the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald, to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla, each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Now back to the story. After killing Andrew Helgeline in January 1908, 48-year-old Belle Gunness had a problem. She had just fired her farmhand, Ray Lamphere, and he was incredibly bitter about losing his job. He went around town spewing all kinds of negative comments about Belle, and some of those comments bordered on threats. That said, he was still absolutely obsessed with Belle, though he might have called it love. Even though he was furious with Belle for firing him, he couldn't stop himself from going back to the farm to try to talk to her, a lot. But Belle wanted nothing to do with Ray. By now, she just wanted him gone. Though interestingly, she never tried to kill him, but she did get a little creative. First, she went to see the local lawman to tell him that Ray stole a silver watch from her home. But the sheriff wasn't buying it, so Belle changed tactics. The next time Ray tried to come and see her, she sent word that there was a trespasser on her farm, and Ray was whisked away to jail. However, Ray wasn't discouraged by this. After all, he just had to pay a fine and he was a free man. So that's what he did. Then he went right back to the farm. So Belle had him arrested again and again. Four times over he did this. He was obsessed. But Belle couldn't devote all her attention to getting Ray Lamphere out of her life because now she had a second problem, Andrew Helgeline. Most of the other suitors she'd killed over the years didn't have anyone close enough to notice their absence. That was partly why Belle had been so successful, but Andrew was different. His brother, Osla, hadn't heard from Andrew in weeks and started to worry. So he wrote to Belle, who he knew Andrew had gone to visit. Osla also wrote to the Laporte Bank for good measure, just to see if they knew anything about his brother's arrival in town. The bank confirmed that Andrew had come in to do business with them, and Bell wrote back to Osla, claiming that Andrew had left of his own accord weeks earlier. She said she hadn't heard from him since. But something about that just didn't sit well with Osla. He knew his brother wouldn't just up and disappear, and he had a sinking feeling that something terrible had happened. So he was determined to get to the bottom of it, although there was no way he could have imagined just how horrifying the truth really was. Between Ray and Osla, Belle had her hands full, and both men were threatening to escalate the situation. As Osla prepared to come to Laporte to investigate, Ray hinted to Belle that he knew what had really happened to Andrew. But Belle wasn't too nervous about that, she knew it was a hollow threat. Ray might say he would reveal her secrets, but they both knew that what he really wanted was some attention. Still, Belle didn't want to take any chances. She tried to have Ray discredited, just in case he did start babbling. She called on the local doctor, feigning concern over Ray's sanity. But after a quick examination, it was clear to the doctor that Ray was perfectly sane, so that option was out of the question. Undeterred, she tried another route, this time telling people that Ray was threatening to burn her house down and kill her and her children. 
But then it seems Belle's lies gave her an idea, one that settled in her mind and took root until she saw it as her only way out. For years, she had operated with impunity, but now with a former farmhand who knew too much and a curious stranger coming out to look into her, things were getting too hot. She needed to find a way to start anew, just like she had back in Chicago after her various insurance payouts. Belle had started a fire before, and she knew how to make it not look like arson. She could set the farm aflame, cash out, and then move to a place where no one knew her. But even as she thought that option through, she knew that it wouldn't be enough this time. There was a trail of bodies that could eventually point right back to her. If she was going to start over again, she'd need to do it so thoroughly and completely that no one would ever be able to find her. And that meant going on her own. No dead weight dragging her down, not even her own children. On April 27, 1908, 48-year-old Belle went to see her lawyer. She told him that she was afraid Ray was going to burn her house down and that she wanted to make her will just in case. She was letting the tears fall, acting like a scared woman. Of course, Belle wasn't really scared. She was undeniably resolute and strong, but she knew how to play the part well. She'd had years to hone her performance skills after all. Her lawyer bought the act. Just as so many men had before him, he drafted Belle's will for her, listing her bequests. Her farm was to go to her children, she instructed. But if they died first, then the property should go to the Norwegian orphan home. This was an unusual request that might have been a ruse to make her will seem more thoughtful, more believable. As such, her lawyer wanted to double-check the legal name of the orphanage, but Belle insisted there was no time to wait. She wanted to sign the papers right then and there. He shrugged. She was the client. If she really wanted to leave something like that up to chance, then he couldn't stop her. She took the pen, signed the document, and then headed back to the farm. That night, Belle returned home to her children. She cooked one final meal and laced it with her favorite poison, strychnine. She fed it to 11-year-old Myrtle, 9-year-old Lucy, and 5-year-old Philip. She also poisoned the new farmhand who was living with them, a man named Joe Maxson. After dinner, they all went to bed early, no doubt feeling the effects of the strychnine. Everyone except for Belle, of course, who patiently waited for the drug to take effect. Then she went to her children's bedrooms with a hammer, finding each of them nearly comatose from the strychnine. One by one, she bludgeoned them to death and dragged their bodies down into the basement. With all the pieces set, Belle set to work getting ready for the big finish. She emptied a large can of kerosene around the basement floor. Then she took a match and set fire to the farmhouse, knowing full well that Joe the farmhand was still passed out upstairs, just waiting to be burned alive. Perhaps she saw what she did to her children as a mercy. At least they wouldn't feel the flames. 
When we think about the hierarchy of crimes, killing one's own kid ranks pretty high as one of the most heinous things a person can do. But filicide, the act of a parent killing a child, is unfortunately common enough to have specific subgroups. These help try to understand how a person could commit such a crime. In Bell's case, she falls under the unwanted child filicide subgroup. According to forensic psychiatrist Sarah G. West, this is when a child is considered a hindrance to such a degree that the parent believes they'd benefit from getting rid of them. Bell had already committed this horrific act once before when her eldest daughter, Jenny, started to become a problem for her. Now, once again, her kids were in the way of what she wanted. But unlike most mothers who would prioritize their children over their own needs, Bell was firmly in the opposite camp. She had never allowed anything to get in her way before, and her kids weren't an exception to her lifelong rule. She wanted to start over, and to do that, she needed to be entirely free of attachments and responsibilities. So she let the fire burn without any regrets. But upstairs in the early morning hours, Joe woke up smelling smoke. He was a little groggy, but it seems he didn't ingest as much poison as Belle had planned, because as soon as he realized what was happening, he jumped out of bed and sprinted from the house, narrowly escaping the flames. From there, he raced into town, calling for help. They had to save Belle Gunness and her children, he cried out. He returned with the Laporte Fire Department, who managed to put out the blaze. But by then, it was too late. The entire house was burnt down. There couldn't possibly be any survivors. The citizens of Laporte were stunned by the tragedy, by the terrible loss of life. But what started as shared sympathy for an entire family lost soon turned into morbid curiosity. Something wasn't right about this fire. When the authorities were able to enter the house later that day, they were intrigued to find all the corpses in the home's basement. And they discovered not just the three children, but a fourth corpse of an adult woman. It was Belle, everyone presumed at first, but there was just one problem. She didn't have a head. The sheriff was dumbfounded. How on earth did that happen? But an answer to that question wasn't the only secret Belle Gunness's farm had to give up. Up next, authorities dig up the truth about Belle Gunness. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now back to the story. In April 1908, 48-year-old Belle Gunness's Indiana farmhouse went up in flames. By the next afternoon, authorities uncovered four bodies in the charred remains of her basement, Belle's three children, along with a mysterious, headless corpse. The whole town of Laporte seemed to descend on the Gunness farm in collective sympathy. The idea that someone had murdered the single mother and her family was horrifying and tragic. In the immediate aftermath, most people thought that the headless corpse was Belle. It made more sense than any other explanation, except for her missing head. And if the fourth body was Belle, then someone else was most likely responsible for the fire. As if by script, exactly as Belle would have wanted it, suspicion immediately fell on Ray Lamphere, Belle's former farmhand. After all, he had been going around town mumbling dark thoughts, and Belle herself had said that he threatened to burn down her home. Taking all that into account, the Laporte citizens were more than happy to jump on board with the theory. But soon, a second possibility arose. Some of the detectives on site, and plenty of people throughout town, suspected that the headless woman in the basement wasn't Belle at all, but some other unknown woman. And if that was the case, Belle wasn't the victim at all, but something far more terrifying. Sure enough, upon closer inspection, they noticed that the headless corpse was about five inches shorter than Belle and 50 pounds lighter, even when factoring in the weight of her head. It seems that Belle had one final victim. But authorities had no idea who the woman was or why Belle would have killed her, or more shockingly, why she would have killed her own children. And it bore the question, if she wasn't dead, then where was Belle now? I'll let you know right now that Belle's fate is still debated, which makes this case a little different than the majority of the ones we cover, because one of the most fascinating aspects of this case, and of Belle herself, is that she's still a mystery. At the time in April 1908, the fascination with her story ran rampant. Laporte citizens came up with all kinds of theories, and newspapers across the state covered the developments as they unfolded. A week or so after the Gunnis Farm fire, Osla Helgeline, the brother of Bell's final suitor, arrived in the port as he had threatened. He wanted to investigate things for himself, not just hear through the gossip vine. He was convinced that there was another body to uncover on Bell's property. Unfortunately, he was too late to question Bell in person, but he and Bell's farmhand, Joe, teamed up to look for clues to Andrew's whereabouts. Joe remembered that there was something strange about one area of farmland that he had helped Bell dig in March. At the time, he had dumped some garbage into the hole, then filled it in, 
per her instructions. Now, Joe and Osla began digging up that area, and sure enough, they found what they were looking for, a man's body wrapped up in a gunny sack. Osla took one look and knew that it was his brother. The corpse was still in good enough shape that he could say it with confidence. In response, the sheriff called for the entire property to be searched. If there were more bodies, they were going to find them. News of the discovery spread like wildfire across not just Laporte, but all of Indiana and its surrounding states. People came from afar just to watch the digging happening on the farm. They set up picnics and blocked the roads onto the property. It was the social event of the year. Suddenly, everyone wanted to know more about the mythical murderess, Belle Gunness. Her name grew into something larger than life. People started calling her Lady Bluebeard. They created rhymes and came up with local lore about her, including a story about her baking up her victims' bodies as sausages and serving them to the next suitor in line. But though the gossip was fun for some, the truth was crazy enough all on its own. Authorities ended up uncovering at least eight more bodies buried on the farm, along with a whole assortment of various men's belongings. Interestingly, they uncovered more men's watches than there were bodies, which led the sheriff to believe that the true number of victims was even larger. One of the bodies was brought to the coroner, who determined that it was Belle's eldest daughter, Jenny. Belle had told everyone the teenager had gone off to college in Los Angeles, but Jenny had been on the farm the whole time, just six feet under. Still, even as Belle seemed more and more guilty, the sheriff's department set their sights on Ray Lamphere. They didn't have Belle to prosecute, but they did have him, and they were convinced that he had a hand in the fire. Certain factions of the force wanted to charge him with murdering the whole Gunnis family, too. But for reasons that aren't totally clear, they never did. Instead, they ended up only charging him with arson. He was found guilty and sentenced to an indeterminate prison term between 2 and 21 years. But in December of 1909, just one year into his sentence, he died of tuberculosis. Right before his death, there was a concerted effort to get Ray to confess to his involvement in the Gunnis blaze. In the end, he did tell a journalist that he'd set the farm on fire so that Bell could escape. But historians have never verified that his deathbed confession was, in fact, true, or if he was just pressured into saying it. Either way, his dying words didn't stop the theorizing. It only exacerbated it. Now, there were several main theories. The first was in line with Ray's confession. He had set the fire and Bell had escaped. The second idea was that perhaps Ray had murdered Bell in a fit of rage. However, most believed that Bell herself was responsible for both the fire and her children's deaths, and Ray was just trying to insert himself into the case. But the truth was elusive. No one could be totally sure what really happened. 
There's one final theory that's arisen in the years since this case, which is worth mentioning. It's quite possible that Belle did everything she was accused of and still ended up dead, not just as the corpse in the basement. You see, some people still believe that Belle didn't act alone, that she had one or more accomplices. The theory goes that she murdered her children, orchestrated the fire, and then fled into the night, only to have one of her mysterious accomplices kill her for her money. After all, she was likely fleeing with all the cash she had swindled and saved, probably something close to $30,000, which would be about $860,000 today. It's possible that one of her accomplices got greedy and wanted the booty for themselves. Or Belle might have gotten concerned about having someone out there who knew the truth, so she tried to put an end to one of the men who helped her, only for them to turn on her and kill her. At the end of the day, all we can do is hypothesize. There was never any definitive conclusion to this case, and so many questions remain unanswered. For years after the infamous fire, people claimed to see Belle all across the country. It became a sort of collective obsession. People saw her everywhere. Of course, it was at such a frequency that it would have been physically impossible for her to be in every place. False identifications happen all the time, especially when people are looking to insert themselves into famous cases. So it's safe to say that most of these sightings were nothing more than wishful thinking. But there was one interesting connection that came many years later. In 1931, 23 years after the Gunnis Farm fire, an elderly woman in Los Angeles was charged with murdering a man for money. Her name was Esther Carlson, and she bore a striking resemblance to Belle, to the point where two people who had known Belle recognized her from Esther's photos. It might be a stretch to believe that Esther Carlson was Belle, but if they really were the same person, then Belle likely had a long stretch of her life where she wasn't killing. According to forensic psychologist J. Reed Malloy, serial killers like Belle make the conscious, intentional choice to commit their crimes. He argues that there is choice, capacity, and opportunity that is exercised each time. So there are also opportunities for dormant stretches, this can happen for any number of reasons. Perhaps the killer finds a new outlet, or perhaps they move away from the epicenter of activity. If we accept that Belle really did survive the fire and its aftermath, then afterwards, she might have not felt the need to kill at such a rapid pace as she had in Indiana. But eventually, if we're also assuming that Esther was Belle, she had felt the itch again the need to kill and to take a man's money, that sure does sound like Belle. Unfortunately, Esther Carlson died before she went to trial, slipping away into oblivion. Few people remember her, and no one ever proved one way or another whether she was, in fact, the murderous Belle Gunness. But if that really was the case, then Belle had indeed made a fresh start as a completely new person, only to then fall back into killing for money, just like she always had.
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Belle Gunness, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Truth About Belle Gunness, The True Story of Notorious Serial Killer Hell's Bell by Lillian De La Torre, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Vanessa from ParCast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.